Hey guys, it's October. I just realized that today. I mean, I knew it, but it didn't really sink in. It's October already. Time is moving by very, very quickly. And, um, you know, I mentioned in my prayer, and it's, uh, it's just been on my mind a lot about this morning, as, as we come to communion together, I, I've just, I've, oh, excuse me, I've been thinking, how, how do we approach this? I mean, I know how to do communion. We've done it so many times before, and, and that's really my concern. You know, Jesus said when, he, uh, when his, one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, and he was teaching them to pray, one of the things he said was, don't just go on babbling like the pagans do, going through their routine stuff, their memorized prayers that they say. He said, that's not what I'm looking for. And the same is true here with us. There's a, there's a danger for us to come to this and go, oh, communion, yeah, been doing that since I was five. My prayer is uh, every time we do this, and if you've never been here before, we, we always set aside a whole Sunday just to pause and focus on what this means. Um, my prayer every time we come and do this is that the Holy Spirit would uh, reveal something new to us. Um, and it'll be something old, but that he would make it new to us. Um, and that's my prayer this morning. You know, human beings pretty much mess up everything God entrusts them with. And communion is no different. You look back in the Bible, Paul had to write a whole letter to one of his churches, the church in Corinth. You can go ahead and be turning to 1 Corinthians. He had to write that letter to the, the Christians in Corinth. One of the things they were doing was they were making a mess of communion. And it was bringing shame on um, the cause of Christ. Paul addresses these Christians in the Corinthian church, and his words are not only for them, as the Bible says about itself, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God or the woman of God may be uh, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Uh, the Bible says that these things were written down for our learning. And so what Paul had to write to the Corinthian church, um, his words still enlighten us about what to do when we come to the Lord's table to partake of the bread and the cup. And so I want to read these very familiar words to us today before we begin and take just a few minutes together um, to look at this. And I'm going to start a few verses earlier than people normally do, than pastors normally do. They usually start in verse 23. I want to back up just a little bit, and let's begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20. And you'll probably see right away why most pastors skip over this part, because it's just, it just doesn't create a very pleasant atmosphere for communion. But listen to what Paul has to say there. Now, Paul's a long way away. 
He says, therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? I do not praise you. Now here's where we usually pick up. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Wow. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. And that sleep is not nodding off in church. That sleep is translated death. It occurs to me, uh, because I'm such a genius, that all religions of the world have and do certain things that identify them to the world around them. As I was putting these thoughts together over the last couple of weeks, I I thought about years ago, uh, one day sitting in Heathrow International Airport, which is one of the hubs of the world when it comes to flights. And if you're in Heathrow long enough, you'll see someone from every part of the world. It's uh, worse than the DMV by a long shot. It's crowded, packed, cramped, uncomfortable, and just people from everywhere. It's quite a remarkable sight. And as I was sitting there, I, I saw people from everywhere, and I was kind of trying to play this game of identifying them and wondering where they were from or what religion they were. Uh, a Muslim family walked by, and I, I knew they were Muslim because the wife and the teenage daughters were wearing the traditional hijab, which is the head covering that women wear to cover their face and only expose their eyes. And that's how they communicate to the world that they're Muslim and they adhere to the teachings of the Quran and Muhammad. I saw a woman who had a red dot right in the middle of her forehead. And I knew right away that she was Hindu. They put a dot right here in their forehead 
Uh, they call it the third eye. And to them, it's a way of, um, well, it's demonic is what it is at the end of the day. But, but to them, uh, it's a way of opening a portal into their uh, consciousness so that they can uh, invite in spiritual insight and awakening through that third eye. I also saw, and you rarely see these anymore, an elderly man dressed in a long black robe who had tied around his forehead a tiny little box on his forehead. And he had leather straps on his arm. And he had these long bits of hair, curly hair, hanging down like this. And I knew right away he was an Orthodox Jew. Orthodox Jews take literally the words of the Lord from Exodus, where it says that you are to bind God's law upon your forehead. And as I sat in that airport for several hours, waiting for my layover, I saw all these people pass by, and I couldn't help but ask myself a question that I want to ask you today. If a devout, a devout Muslim can be identified by what she wears, if a practicing Hindu can be identified by a dot on the forehead, if an Orthodox Jew can be identified by the little box that he wears with the scriptures in it, what do we do that lets people know that we're serious about being followers of Christ? What is the outward sign and practice that identifies us to the world as born-again believers, devout disciples, committed followers, those who take seriously our faith in Jesus Christ? For the Muslim, it may be what they wear. It may be an annual pilgrimage to Mecca. For the Hindu, it may be the dot on the forehead. For the Buddhist, it might be an orange robe. For the Sikh, it might be a turban wrapped high upon the head. For the Amish, it's the modest, austere lifestyle that they live. But what is it that identifies us as people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ? Most organizations, when you think about it, not just religions, but most organizations, groups, clubs, sororities, on and on the list goes, have something by which their members can be identified. If you're out and about and you see a young man with a buzz cut and wearing that uniform, you know by that that he's a member of the army. Uh, for those of you who are children of the 70s, you give yourself away every time a Bee Gees song comes on and your foot starts tapping and your head starts bobbing and your children slide under the seat. You're identified by that. For NASCAR fans, um, they're identified by always wearing a dirty tank top and using bad grammar. That's a terrible joke. My apologies if you're a NASCAR fan. But it is true, though, isn't it? <laughs> but what is it, I ask now for about the fourth time, what is it that identifies us 
as Christians, as followers of Christ. Jesus never commanded us to wear a certain outfit. He never told us that we all had to cut our hair the same way. And you're looking at me right now going, thank you, Lord. I don't want to cut my hair like Phil. Uh, We don't have to go to Jerusalem once a year and stand at Calvary to receive some kind of special spiritual revelation from God. What is it that identifies us as believers in Jesus Christ? You, You might be quick to say, well, Phil, we pray. Well, I got news for you. Other religions pray. Uh, You say, well, we read and study the Bible. Other religions have their sacred books as well. You say, well, we gather every Sunday. Mm. Other religions gather too. Well, we baptize people. Yep, even some other religions have their own odd form of baptism. What is the common practice we share among all true Christians that serves to identify and unite us? Listen, it's what we're getting ready to do today. It's taking the Lord's Supper together. It's sharing communion around the Lord's table. The taking of the bread and cup is the one thing that was given exclusively to followers of Christ. It's the one thing Christians do that is unique to us. The very elements of communion exclaim to us and to the world that we have a Savior who gave his life on the cross, who shed his blood for us. And by his death and resurrection, we're redeemed from the hands of the enemy. Communion, the very word, should speak to us. Communion ought to unite us in Christ. The word itself is derived from the old words, com, which means with or together, and unus, which means Union or oneness. The word community, for example, literally means together in unity. Come together, unus, unity. Um, A word like excommunicate also speaks. Ex means out, like exit or exodus. So excommunicate means that someone has been taken out of the togetherness, the oneness that they once shared. There are several things that taking communion together is supposed to remind us of, and I want to focus your attention on just two for just a few minutes this morning. I don't have fancy points for this. Um, I just put them down as they made sense to me. Number one, we are to be a caring community. The very definition of the word communion should remind us that we are people who have been called to live in co-union with one another. And one of the visible signs that a church is doing that is that they will genuinely care about each other. It was clear that the Christians in Corinth were not doing this. They were not living in co-union, in co-oneness with each other. 
And Paul had to write this letter to address that problem. In this letter, he points out some things that they should have been remembering when they came together to share in communion. They were not only disrespecting the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross, but they were exposing the fact that they didn't care about their fellow believers at all, despite what they said. Uh, If we're truly living in unity, it'll be, it will be evident by the way that we care about one another. Communion not only celebrates the fact that we have a relationship with Christ, it ought to also remind us of and celebrate the fact that we have relationships with each other. And just as Christ demonstrated his love for us by laying down his life for us, we're also called in in, in no vague terms whatsoever to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. But the actions of uh, the, the Corinthian believers were showing that they didn't care about their other, their fellow believers. Now, Let's remember something. When Paul wrote this letter, Christians didn't meet in nice church buildings like we're doing today. They didn't have all these facilities. They met in people's homes. And they also didn't celebrate communion with a tiny piece of bread and a little miniature cup. It was an entire meal. So keep that in mind as we move forward. And in order for a whole church to gather together in someone's house, it had to be a big house, which meant typically that it was owned by a wealthy person who was in the church. One example that comes to mind is a woman named Lydia, who we read about in the book of Acts chapter 16, I believe it is. Lydia was a wealthy businesswoman. And where does it say that the church in Philippi met? They met at Lydia's house. And so it's kind of a, it would be a very common thing for that to take place. And it's also important, I'm going to show you in just a minute some pictures of of this. It's important to know how the houses were commonly laid out in that day. Back then, there were two rooms in the house that would have been would have sort of come into play at this time of communion for the church. They had the atrium, which in those houses was a huge open space. Now, they've excavated hundreds of these homes from that area, many of them preserved in incredible position uh, um, condition, and some have been restored. So there is an example of an actual atrium from that part of the world from that day. But then there was another room called the triclinium, or the dining room. It was the formal dining room. The atrium was this huge open space. The triclinium, the dining room, was a much smaller room, usually only built to hold nine people at most, nine to 12 people. Now, when the Corinthian church gathered for communion, remember, a full meal Only a select few were invited into the triclinium, the small dining room, the place where uh, the best china was used. 
The best silverware was used. And everybody else had to stay out in the atrium. The ones in the triclinium stayed there as long as they want, according to what Paul is saying, and they ate the best portions of the food while everyone in the atrium had to just wait out there. And by the time the first group was finished, everyone in the atrium only got the leftover scraps. The ones in the triclinium, Paul says, got full and drunk. While the ones in the atrium left hungry and thirsty. Does that give you a better picture of what Paul is saying here? Paul says that's not communion. By the very definition of it, it's not communion. You're not in unity and you're not caring for the needs of others. Some of you consider yourselves to be better and more important than others in your church. And so you take the best spot every time you meet for communion. And Paul says, I'm hearing rumblings of this. I've been getting reports of this from the Corinthian church, that all the rest of the people are being left out. When we partake in the Lord's Supper, it should remind us that just as Jesus sacrificed himself for us, we are called to sacrifice ourselves for one another. Jesus made this uh, very clear. The, if, if you are looking for the discourses on the Lord's Supper, on communion, the night before the cross, you'll find them in um, uh, Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, John 13, which gives a different view on it, and then here in 1 Corinthians, uh, where we are today. In John 13, we read this in verse 35. Jesus said, By this, all will know that you are my disciples. How, Jesus? How how are we going to identify ourselves? How's the world going to know we're your disciples? We get in a special robe and a badge? Uh Uh-uh. Special funky haircut? Nope. Watch this. By this, all will know that you are my disciples. How? If you have love for one another. You know where Jesus was when he said that? He had just finished instituting what we call the Lord's Supper for the first time with his disciples. And just moments before he said this, he had been down on his knees on the floor washing his disciples' feet. And as that dirty water sloshed around in the basin, Jesus said to them, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples. If you love one another the way I've loved you, that is astounding to me. If I had been there, you would be reading about disciple Phil, who spoke up and put his foot in his mouth by saying, Lord, it's got to be something more important than that, that that identifies us. It can't be something that simple. And as you read, study the life of Jesus and the words he spoke, you would expect, you know, if the Bible was made up, surely the writers would write these 
eloquent, long speeches, calling these people to huge, great, mighty things. No, no, no. Jesus was the opposite. He said, I've come to change the world. And how am I going to do it? By renting an auditorium and preaching to 10,000 people? No, no. Give me 12 guys. 12 guys. None of whom, none of whom will get my teaching before I even die. Not one of them. But this is going to change the world. It's staggering to think about his approach on this. We've got it so mixed up today. We go for the big, the flashy. Those things make a big impact in the moment, but you know what? They fade away quickly. You can't keep up that song and dance. You can't keep topping yourself every Sunday. That's an exhausting thing for church leaders to try to do to try to keep people happier today than they were last week. I don't care if you're happier today than you were last week or not. That's not even the point. Jesus said, we're going to change the world, fellas. And here's how we're going to do it. You love others and each other like I've loved you. It's going to blow the world's mind. And they're going to come running, wanting to know what in the world is up with you people. And we'll have a chance to tell them the gospel. Sadly, the Corinthian church failed at that. How are we doing? I can just tell you, I'm so proud of this church for the way that I see you extending yourselves. One of the words that Paul used in one of his letters was um, the word for stretching a muscle, for extending a muscle. And that's what, that's what I see you doing so often. Oh, I don't mean up here on the stage where everybody sees it. This stuff doesn't, it doesn't matter much in the long run. It's what y'all are doing in your lives day by day, week by week. I hear things every once in a while and just go, wow, it's incredible. Somebody heard about that and just went and took care of it, showed love. Keep it up, LifePoint. You think those things you're doing are insignificant and unimportant and they don't really matter for eternity? You think what Phil does on Sundays up here is what really matters? No, you got it backwards. Love that you show to each other and to others is exactly what Jesus said would be the identifying mark for us. And communion is our one unique um, identifier that should remind us of what Jesus said of loving each other the way that he laid down his life and loved us. So 1 Corinthians 11 teaches us not only that we are to be a caring community, but finally, number two, it teaches us, and I really want you to see this, that we are blessed even when we are broken. Oh, this, uh, this has meant uh, so much to me the last couple of weeks. 
term we use for what we're doing today is not only communion, about being in co-union with Christ and with each other, but I'm sure you've heard another word, Eucharist, which is a, a word that translated from the Greek simply means to give thanks. So anytime you hear the word Eucharist, it's not some fancy, weird word from some other denomination. It just means to give thanks. The Bible says on the night Jesus was betrayed, he gave thanks. I want you to really hear what I just said, because I don't think you heard. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he gave thanks. This is incredible. Don't miss this. On the night he was betrayed, he gave thanks. On the same night that Judas stabbed him in the back, he gave thanks. On the same night that Peter denied even knowing him, he gave thanks. On the same night he suffered unjust trials, he gave thanks. On the same night he was slapped and punched and beaten and lied about and spat upon, he gave thanks. When it seemed like he didn't have anything to be thankful for, he still gave God thanks. How was he able to do that? Well, he was Jesus, you say. Oh, maybe you missed the part where he was fully man. He got hungry and thirsty and tired and frustrated. Jesus didn't accomplish that by reading a bunch of self-help books or by going to seminars or by psyching himself up to get through it. He was able to give thanks in the worst trial of his life because he entrusted his life completely into his father's loving care. And he knew that no matter what happened, his father would never steer him wrong. It's easy to thank God when life is going well. But can we also thank him when it's not? It's easy to thank God when you and your spouse are on your honeymoon. But what about 20 years later when life bears down on you and you're facing things that you never imagined you would? What about then? Can you thank God then? It's easy to thank God when... When you can look out the kitchen window in your backyard and see your little kids healthy and strong and happy, running and playing. But what about when they get older and they face things you never thought they would? And they suffer and hurt in ways you never thought they would. They turn their back on God. What about then? Can you thank God then? It's easy to thank God when you've got a good job and 
got some money in the bank. But what about when your boss says, I'm sorry, we're downsizing, got to let you go? What about when you have more bills than money? Can you thank God then? On the night he was betrayed, he gave thanks. We're called to give thanks in all circumstances. In our trials, we thank God. In our heartaches, we thank God. In our loneliness, we thank God. In our loss, we thank God. When the doctor says, I'm sorry, we thank God. When that friend or family member turns their back on you and betrays you, We thank God. And no, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I am not in any way minimizing the reality of the pain of any of those circumstances. We will hurt. We will ache. We will cry in this life. But we are people who are supposed to understand that this life is only temporary. And even in all the hardships and storms that come our way, we know without a doubt that we are held securely in the hands of God and he will never let us go until the moment he brings us home safely to be with him. We've got to know that, or life will destroy us. How, how can we call ourselves followers of Christ and come to his table today when we get mad at him every time something goes wrong in our life? How can we call ourselves followers of Christ, and walk around angry and sad and bitter because life isn't going exactly how we want it to go. We're called to give thanks in the worst of times. We're called to give thanks even when we are broken. I want you to see this just before I finish. In Matthew 26, account of the Lord's Supper, says this in Matthew 26, 26, Jesus took the bread, he blessed it, and then he broke it. I want you to really get this. He took the bread, he blessed it, And then he broke it, which means it was blessed before it was broken. Maybe today you're stuck in broken because you failed to see how much God has already blessed you before the brokenness came. You need to stop complaining about the breaking and start thanking God that you're blessed in spite of it. 
The entire Lord's Supper that Jesus instituted here was created and designed to picture, to represent the death that he was about to die on the cross. All the elements, all the pieces of it, all are pictures. They all point forward to what he was about to do for us. He was getting ready to undergo the most unimaginable anguish of his life. But he knew that every part of what he was about to endure had already been blessed by the Father. And so he was able to give thanks for it. We ought to be people who recognize that in spite of the loss, in spite of the pain, in spite of the sickness, in spite of the betrayal, God has blessed us and we've got a reason to be thankful for what the Lord has already done. Every one of us, every one of us has a thousand, thousand reasons to join in the chorus of praise to God for his goodness. We can say, I might be laid off, but I'm blessed. I might be sick in my body, but I'm blessed. I may be carrying heartache, but I'm blessed. I might be feeling lonely, but I'm blessed. God has been good to me because he's covered my sins in the blood of Christ and given me eternal life. I may be broken, but I am blessed. Can you say that this morning? He blessed it, and then he broke it. Jesus went to the cross and was broken there for us. But listen, God had already blessed that mission before it even started. The brokenness that he went through was blessed by God. It says it pleased the Father that he suffered and died. Oh, he wasn't happy about it. That's not what that word means. But it means he he knew that salvation was now going to be extended to the whole world through the agony and death of his son. And so he gave his blessing to it. Listen, I've told you so many times, and the reason I say this is not because I have some kind of beef with, with other pastors. I'm tell, I tell you this often to warn you. This is why we must be so incredibly alert and careful to this foolish nonsense teaching that we hear so much of, the health and wealth nonsense. Please guard yourself against that. Does God want to bless you and prosper you? Of course he does. He's a good father. But if that's all we talk about, how do we handle the report of cancer that comes? How do we handle the untimely death of a child? Because these things will happen to Christians. In this world, you will have trouble. But be of good cheer. For I have overcome the world, and you are in me. So you have overcome in me, Jesus said. 
Whatever brokenness God may have allowed into your life, please be careful not to allow resentment to build up in your heart against God or against anybody else. Whatever brokenness God may have allowed into your life, don't ever forget that he blessed it long before it ever came your way. He blessed it. I've heard some people say it this way, that nothing can come into our life that hasn't first passed through the hands of a loving father. Would you ever do anything to knowingly hurt your child? I'd take a bullet first. Whatever brokenness comes into your life, it has been blessed by God. It has been ordained for you. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying it's hard. But I'm saying that we can know and we must know that it's not random circumstances. It's not bad luck. God will take all of us who are true believers through the furnace of affliction. All of us to purify us, to burn off that junk in our lives that we just can't seem to let go of, to shape us, to mold us in ways that we cannot do ourselves. It hurts. It's hard. But listen to me. God knows what he is doing. From the outside looking in at what happened, we would have, we would have thought sending his son to the cross was the worst imaginable idea. But God knew well ahead what he was doing. And he allowed his son to be broken, but he blessed that mission first. You might be broken, but you are blessed. The Lord's table is meant to remind you when, whenever you come to it, you're blessed. As we come now to communion, and we thank God for the cross that he was willing to go to for us, may we also pause and thank him for whatever crosses he might have allowed into our life today. Remembering that before it ever came our way, it was blessed. I pray that that will be some encouragement to your heart today. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us proper perspective on all this. I'm always concerned about bringing a message like this because I know without a doubt there's going to be someone sitting out there listening who wants to scream out, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know how badly I'm hurting. Lord, minister to that person today. Comfort them. 
and reassure them with absolute certainty that whatever they're facing in their life, if they know you, if they are in Christ, then Lord, it has come through loving hands. It has been blessed before it was broken. So God, um, grow us up in this area. Mature us in this area. Make us people who don't just talk about these things and who don't have to force ourselves to live this out, but who simply, by your power, are able to walk this way through this life. Lord, help us when we blow this and we fall and we fail. Help us to get back up and dust ourselves off and get back on track. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified through our lives by the way that we live, by the way that we love one another, by the way that we see and handle brokenness. And we give all this to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Whenever you're ready, you may come to the front. We have tables on both sides. You can come and take the juice and the bread. And uh, remember, all you have to do is grab the cup because underneath the juice cup, there's another cup with the bread in it. And that just um, saves uh, everybody from fishing through the bowl to get some bread and just uh, helps keep it all cleaner and neater. Um, My thanks again to Joe and Ginger for their incredible faithfulness for doing this for us every time. So appreciate you guys, among all the other things that you do. Um, Whenever you're ready, you may come, you may take it up here, you may go to your seat, you can find a corner to meet with your family. However you want to do this, it's fine. It's fine with us. Um, But I pray that this time will be a blessing and an encouragement to you. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time... May God bless you as you continue to follow Him. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart I want to see